They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Baby, come back. But bye, 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 bye. But bye, 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 bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Say, Dean Badders, we've got an absolute treat for you today. Um, you, I'm sure you've all heard of Tim Noakes, and we've wanted to get him on for some time. But if you don't know about him, he's someone who uh, first discovered that people were drinking too much liquid during Comrades Ultramarathon and has saved tens, hundreds, potentially hundreds of lives since then in his study of that and awareness of that. He also came up with the idea of the, um, the central governor theory, which proposes that it's fatigue of your emotion and your psychological state that slows you down rather than necessarily your physical state. And then, uh, and then all hell broke loose when he, he came through with his views on um, carbs and a low carb diet. And uh, it's never stopped really being a crazy world for him since then. So work for the podcast, Professor Tim Noakes. Yeah, how are things with you? Very well, thanks. No, life's good. Uh, considering everything, uh, I am retired now, seven years. So that's kind of made it a little bit easier. I don't have to face the the criticism directly on a day to day basis. And does so, that, um, does that make it easier or harder to, I guess, get a platform to to you know engage people? Well, I, I have become very active on Twitter, and that's really been very, very interesting because I've discovered that's one of the best ways to get new information. So I, I wrote recently that it's like going to medical school every day. You just open your Twitter feed, and there you get all this information, which you don't get when you're at medical school. So you can keep up and be actually ahead of the, the curve because the information is there. So I've just followed the real experts, and, and they've incredibly... Uh, sharing they share so much that it's it just is a huge educational process and i i guess that's the trouble with twitter though is it's the 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 definition of who the experts are is is very varied should we say so how do you how would you define the experts then well i look for people who are professors at major universities but i look at what they say i mean that's the key and so there i've probably got you know, 10 or 15 people who I think are the world, world's best. And uh, so I know from their publications and then what they say. And, I've, you've, you know, it's very difficult on Twitter to, to promote something that's wrong. It will soon become apparent that you'll have 100 people telling you you're completely wrong. And so I go with the people who, who I find that everything they say seems to be true, at least as far as I understand it. And again, I'm, I'm judging from my own experience. Uh, you know, I'm sure I don't follow people who, in a topic that I have no knowledge about. I only mm. go in areas where I have some some insights. What What do you say then? Because I mean, we'll 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 go back and and talk about I guess your findings and your your career and all that. What would you say then? Are the, are the things coming out now now that for you are this new information that, that we may not have heard of? Yeah. So. Obviously, nutrition, uh, I've been really, we're focusing on that for about 10 years. And if, if you wanted to say what's happening now at this very current moment. So when I went on the so-called low-carb diet, 
we we incorrectly call it a high fat diet actually it's not a high fat diet you eat mm. the same amount of fat that you did before but what it is it's you just cut out the carbs and what we're realizing is you actually need to increase the protein as well so there's a uh, and particularly at my age 72 you need more protein and i think that's one of the changes that's coming about it's really funny because i was there's a guy called ted Naiman who's an orthopedic surgeon in in seattle and he started talking about the pe ratio and what you eat the protein to energy ratio and he said most of the nutrients come with proteins so if you want high protein food high nutrient dense foods you could look for protein and then he said so you you calculate how many grams of protein there is and then you have to divide that by how many grams of carbohydrate and fat there are and so the best according to him the best foods would be the ones that have a high protein and less carbohydrate and and less fat whereas we were not we were focusing and saying eat more fat and because it satiates you and that that's wrong it's clear that that for many of us eating more protein is very helpful the funny thing was that the diet doctor, who was one of the people who really got me on the low-carb diet, about uh, six months ago, he tweeted and he said, I've just lost three extra kilos around my waist or inches around my waist, et cetera, et cetera. I've been on a low-carb diet for 26 years. What do you think I've done? So I said, well, you've gone on a 40% protein diet and you started doing CrossFit. So he said, no, I'm not doing CrossFit, but I am doing the 40 plus percent protein diet. And he's been pushing it lately. So, so he has a guy for 26 years is eating a low-carb diet, promoting a low-carb diet, and he, like, he discovered it. And it's, what was really interesting was there were about 100 responses to him. I was the only one who got it right, that he'd increased the protein. So, and, so, and so then, because I think that's been, for, I guess, marketing-wise, for your view, has been the issue is that we've almost been, we've obviously been, led to, you know influenced heavily by gatorades and the likes but also i mean for me personally i was quite influenced by the people i knew who did the atkins diet were the unhealthiest people typically who didn't want to actually be fit eat good food and who almost used it as a an excuse to to live like a teenager and lose weight um so i mean do you think that is is, I mean, is that just me or do you think, think, think in the West that has actually been a, a common obstacle to getting your view across? Yeah, I think because the diet you're prescribing is actually the conventional diet, which is full of uh, hamburgers and chips and Coca-Cola and so on, which in fact, if you go to McDonald's and eat their diet, you get 65% carbohydrate diet. So, you know, that's not an Atkins diet. I think that our, our focus is on real foods, that that's the key, that you don't eat processed foods. So what I like to tell people is nutrition or what humans have eaten have gone through three phases. Firstly, was the carnivore phase where that's when we grew up as and became from apes to humans. And then we went through the agricultural revolution about 18,000 years ago. And more recently, about the last 50 years ago, we've gone through the ultra processed food industry, ultra processed food. And that's where we are today. We're eating ultra processed foods. And those that's really the problem. So if you... If you, if you want to eat a healthy diet, just don't eat ultra-processed foods. I don't mind what, you, what else you eat. So it's probably much more that than the carbohydrate-protein-fat ratio. That's, that's not the critical component for most people. It's whether you're eating ultra-processed foods or not. And Because I think the, the biggest challenge for... Because I'm, 
I, you know, I've been injured for two years and because of that, suddenly weight is, is a concern because I want to make sure when I'm fit again, that I can be fast quickly and not be, you know, have too much extra timber. But my challenge is that I'm pretty lazy in some ways, but also convenient food is there. And I know in, in this, the, the diet that you suggest, like things like fruit, which I, I rely on heavily as my way of getting my five, well, it should be what, seven, nine a day, aren't, they're not included either. So, I mean, if you're to, like practically, for say you're a, a busy city worker or, you know, a, a, a overstressed parent, what what would you say would, would their days look like? What would, their, what would you recommend people are reaching for and, and, and actually living their life eating? Yeah, so, so what you presented there was the dietary guidelines, the 7 to 10, where there's absolutely zero evidence that you need to eat that much fruit and vegetables. Certainly you need some. But fruit itself is a luxury. It's full of sugar and uh, fructose. And it's not, it's not the ideal for controlling weight. If you, if you ask me how could you control your weight, I just say push your protein content up to 40 to 50%. You will not put on weight, and I can promise you. And that because you get so satiated, you get so filled. You know, try and eat a couple of steaks in a row. You can't, but <laughs> you can eat the ultra processed foods. So, mm. so, and I mean, I I discovered that myself. I put on a little weight in lockdown, and then I realized it was because I eat too much fat, and so I cut back on the fat, replaced it with protein, and the weights disappeared again. It wasn't. It was a few kilos as compared to the twenty kilos I lost when I went low carbs. So, so what would I say? You know, you get up in the morning, you eat bacon and eggs, <laughs> and, and that's it. You eat as much as you can for breakfast, and you don't eat until you come home at night. And you uh, don't snack, nothing. You must eat once a day. That's the key. So it's either breakfast or dinner. And then you have a, a, a real food, fish, meat, dairy, whatever, vegetables, and, and that's how you eat. But the, the idea of snacking all the time is the problem. So if you want to control your weight, I can tell you from, from bitter experience now and working with thousands of people who've, who've corresponded with me, you've, you can't eat ultra-processed food and you have to control your, your cravings. And sugar is the real driver. You've got to get sugar right out. So that's, and then it becomes very easy to, to control your weight. But if you have food cravings, you, you're never going to control your weight. And so, do you, how, does so, how does that how does that work if you uh, so if you are more active? I mean, that was that kind of Dave gave the example there of city worker, yeah. stressed mum. Um, and so, how do how do you kind of overlay nutrition in terms of meeting the the, the needs of your body if you're if you're you're sort of training strenuously? Um, say if you're you know you're yeah. running what five times a week um, or you know yeah. I, I was gonna say according to, according to government guidelines, but I'm not sure that. That's, uh... <laughs> okay, so so the first point is. You know, when I get, last get really into trouble was we published a paper with my great friend, Dr. Asim Malotra from, from London. And it was, you can't outrun a bad diet. And that's key. So the idea that you can outrun and that you can outrun your calories is nonsense. You, the calories are a problem and you have to reduce the calories, but you can't do that emotion. You can't say, I'm going to eat less. It doesn't work. You have to find the foods that will allow you to eat less. And that's more protein and more fat and less ultra processed foods. You know, we, we, we've been around for 4 million years and, and we didn't used to measure calories 4 million years ago, you know, and we did very well. We survived extremely well. And we did because we've got an appetite and that's, 
it keeps our weight. Even if you put on weight, your weight gain is so little. It's unbelievably slow. And that's because this system is so accurate and it only gets confused when you give it ultra processed foods. So, so I'm, I'm very, I like to say, listen to your body. It'll tell you what to eat. And if the scale stays the same, then you're eating, you're in balance. And, but, but if you, if you try to make the scale balance by doing funny things, it doesn't work. You just got to, to follow your biology. So, so how much, because I'm doing um, inter, intermittent fasting, just, just skipping breakfast basically whenever when I can as a way of trying to regulate things. Um, but I, I find that actually I then don't have enough opportunity to really eat a lot of veg. Um, and and you're, you're proposing that actually you only really need to eat once, uh, you know, one big meal with veg in. So how much do you think you can get enough greens you know vitamins in from that yeah well the most nutrient dense foods are not vegetables or fruits that that's the key that people don't understand the most nutrient dense foods are eggs and and liver and meat that's where the nutrients are and so that that's that's where we've been completely misled so when you see a picture of a healthy diet it's always fruit and vegetables it's never meat or fish or eggs or dairy it's never that way but go back 70, 80 years ago when we were all lean, that's what the picture was. Your grandparents or great-grandparents, that's what they ate. That They believed that meat and fish and dairy and, and eggs made you healthy. And, and vegetables were there, certainly. And fruit was a luxury, but it was there. I'm not saying it wasn't there, but it wasn't the focus. The focus was on the, the other fruits that, that we spoke about. So, just, so pick it, just, pick, just, just yeah. to like pick up on something there, because you, it's something you said a little bit earlier when you said yeah. um, we were talking about the changing balance between um, uh, fat and you were talking about increasing protein. Um, as and I think you said, as, you know, as you get older, um, what just just in relation to that point there, it, it isn't the issue with with those things is that as you do get older, the, the fat becomes a problem. And all of the things that you've talked about there are you know, they, they have a lot of fat in them as well. Is that, is that not the issue? Yeah, no, you, you're absolutely right. If you're eating carbohydrates you will, uh, you, and fat, you're going to overeat on calories. That's the problem. So right. you're absolutely right. But what, what the, the Atkins diet did so cleverly was it cut the carbs, and then you, it's very difficult to overeat in fat, but it's not. We showed very early on in, when we promoted this, this diet that 10% of people put on weight on the Atkins diet. Yeah. And whereas others could lose 100 kilograms. I mean, I've had 100 person lose 140 kilograms on this diet. So, so th you got that difference. Some people put on 10 kilograms, others lose 140. So there's, there's a huge individual variability. But when you look in general, in general, most people do quite well by, by just cutting the carbs. But for some, they're still eating too much fat. And what, but they must replace that fat not with carbs, but with protein. So I think that I think we've underestimated the value of protein in general. And well, uh, I mean, I've just read the paper this morning again, showing higher protein intakes. People older age doing well, they do more muscular, etc. You've got the sarcopenia is an issue for, for people my age. We lose muscle, and the way to keep it is to to eat protein, but also to do the right type of exercise. And when we talk about sorry, just, just talk on that yeah. point, just when we're talking about higher, we're just talking about in relation to other 
uh, other other um, macros. Yeah. We're not we're not talking but, about high on its own necessarily. Yeah. So 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 when I was when I first started reading up, you know, if you had a diet that had more than twenty five percent protein, that would be considered high because you had sixty five percent carbohydrate, twenty five percent protein, and the rest as fat. And so anything that was above 25%, but it's clear to me that you can go up to 60% protein. I mean, there are athletes eating that much protein. I'm not saying all of them are doing it, but, but I would have said that will kill you. <laughs> that's, that's what we were taught, that you can't cope with such a high protein intake. So I'm not suggesting you go up to 60%, but, but 25 may be a little bit low for many people, maybe 30, 35, maybe 40. I wouldn't suggest going more than about 40 because it's a difficult diet, actually. But do, do you eat. think the world can sustain that much protein? You know, that's, well, you know, that, that's, a, that's a real issue because if we don't, we're going to get unhealthy. That's the problem. You know, what's the biggest mm. health problem in the world is anemia in people who aren't eating any meat. And that's, that's the problem. Go across India and so on. Anemia is a major problem and it's, got, it's getting worse. And even if we're placing meat with chicken, I'm taking animal produce, uh, beef and so on with chicken, the incidence rates of anemia go up and B12 deficiency go up. So there's a real problem. It, it's, it's, grains are a problem. We can't sustain production of more grains. That's also not. So it's a, it's a really difficult future, uh, whatever way you go. Because actually that, I mean, I think we can with grains in that if we're all getting too fat off it, we could eat fewer grains and have enough food. Whereas if we suddenly go to all protein, it's incredibly bad for the environment. And um, it's so actually it's we're almost in this decision between healthy people. And, and yeah. let's be honest, it's probably healthy, poorer people or um, environmental impact of too many animals over overfishing um, or do, do you think we should be heading towards insects and, and eating insects and oh yeah i think that's a great idea i mean africans have always been doing that but uh, you know you yeah i don't want to get onto the environmental issues they they're more complex and i don't fully understand them but all i do know is that you have to if you take out animal produce, you get more ill health. And then you have to factor that in. What's the environmental impact of that as well? That, that's the problem. You know? So is, is, is there a way then that people can, because uh, a lot of people are vegan or vegetarian morally, um, it, are there options for them? Oh, sure. No, you can certainly be healthy on a veg vegan. Well, I'm not so sure about vegan. But a vegetarian diet, the problem with a lot of vegetarians is that they don't actually look after their diet properly. And so it becomes pizza and Coca-Colas and chips. And they don't eat vegetables. I mean, that's the irony when you start off. I can, vouch, I can vouch for that. I can absolutely yeah. vouch for that. <laughs> that that's the problem. And Jody, that, so that, that's the problem. A lot of vegetarians are actually eating rubbish. And that's, that's, but a, a true vegetarian who's eating vegetables and understands that they do need a little bit of animal protein occasionally, or they've got to find the good source of protein, maybe in eggs or main legumes or, or other proteins. They, they, but it's a difficult diet. You have to really work on it. I think that's the point. And, and it's be also, sure. I mean, the thing is, isn't it, which 
with you know you were specifically talking about there that whatever you do it doesn't matter what diet you follow as long as you don't follow ultra processed and i think the challenge with you know because people talk about protein now a lot of protein for vegans um you know of course comes from tofu and, and, and legumes like you were talking but there is you know that is a whole sector of ultra processed food now get protein for uh, for for uh, sort of a plant-based market mm. it's kind of going into it's almost like the vegan or the the push for non-meat solutions is also pushing us into the ultra processed so i wonder how the all the benefits of mm. it are being you know being lost and and for many things like david said most of it's being driven either morally or environmentally friendly. And so actually most people probably don't care, but there is going to be a knock on effect in 10, 15 years of, you know, even longer of, you know, the, the number of processed foods, which are marketed to a vegan market or marketed to people wanting to wean off meat because the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the message is constantly, you know, not, not to, not to, not to eat not to eat as much meat for environmental purposes and moral purposes and everything else like that so i don't know it's, it, i think it's just one of those challenges whereas and i certainly agree with what you're saying that when when i was a vegetarian i didn't have to think about anything as much switching to being vegan you have to think about everything you have to yeah. you, you're much more mindful a, a, a about what you eat um and much more mindful about the the potential deficiencies you you have as well i mean what what how do you how, how does it feel thinking you know, you're you're positing a um, a viewpoint and then it seems like the world and everything is going in totally the opposite direction to how to, to the view that mm. you're holding you know, no, they aren't, supported, they aren't. supported by government supported by um, you, know, you know the yeah. media supported by everything else how, kind of how how does that kind of make you make you feel no, well, I, I disagree with you because the vegan oh, okay. movement, and I know you're a vegan and I don't, you know, you're absolutely welcome to do what you like, but the vegan movement will never be more than 1% of the population. That, that's, it's stuck on that. It's been like that for, for, for a long time. The, the drive is from people like Bill Gates and, his other, and Cameron and so on, who tried to push ultra-processed foods for their own needs. They, they, they couldn't care less about your health as a vegan. They just want you to eat their, their highly processed foods. So that's the movement, and it's part of this global strategy to get us all under the control of whatever. And how would you? So, I mean, this is this is where you lose me here, Tim. Yeah. Because as soon as someone mentions Bill Gates in the conspiracy, that's that to me is like whoa, 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 hold up. That steps into like there's a uh, whole global. Uh, hold it. Like, so how how are them? Like how are them and Cameron actually promoting processed foods? Would you say? Well, Bill Gates is, and uh, he, he's the biggest owner of land in the United States of America. And we don't know what he's going to do with that. No, the, I'm not. It's not a conspiracy theory. It is the point is he's invested very heavily into that, the, the fake meat the industry. It's not a conspiracy. He's doing it. And Cameron is doing it. But isn't, and Cameron, isn't, Cameron isn't, invested isn't, $140 million into pea protein. So it's not a conspiracy. Yeah, but isn't it? Isn't it's, it the other way around, Wait a second. They're businessmen. They're businessmen. And they yeah. want to develop a product and they are marketing it and they're driving it. And that, that's fine. That's their business. But, but isn't the, that on your side, though, pea protein? And because that's a way of, because pea protein is a way of hopefully helping vegans and vegetarians get, yeah, live, that, live your diet more. No, absolutely. I'm not saying I um, don't like them, what they're doing, but you're saying it's a conspiracy theory. It may, as soon as you mentioned Bill Gates' conspiracy, it's not. He's a businessman. 
he's invested heavily into this. So but isn't, it's his business. Is, isn't he, but isn't, isn't it the other way around, though? Isn't the heavy invest... I'm just putting an alternative yeah. viewpoint here. Isn't the, isn't the heavy investment because that is the direction of travel and they're investing in that on, on, on an upward curve rather than the other way around of they're investing in it and then they're forcing us down this route? Well, I think you should invest in the fake meat industry and see how your <laughs> investment's gone in the last year. And you'll see it's gone down about 50%. You would have lost about 50% of your money. On, on the fake meat industry. So, I mean, that's the facts. So if you say it's a growing market. That, but that's, that's, true, of, that's yeah. true of the weed industry and the weed industry is, is booming. That's more to do with the fact that too many people got excited about it and you know gave these crazy valuations to companies that, I mean, the industry is undeniably growing. And I, I do actually, I would contest that there is more of a shift towards veganism in younger people um, and and even just more people who are eating meat less regularly, um, so, but so would you, do you? Would you then say would you be against all of these uh, fake meats then, even if they are providing uh, nutrition's uh, that are protein based and and, and potentially well, useful you, for the body? I think you have to look at what the nutrients are there and see how they compare to conventional meat, eggs, dairy, liver, and those things, and see how they compare. Because are they, do they contain exactly the same nutrients or not? That, that I don't know. That's the question. And if they do, that's fine. But as far as I know, they're designed to have meat, the feel, the taste, mm. and the feel. They're not designed to be nutritious. That's, if you think that, I, I don't think you're, you're right. But aren't, they, but aren't they looking to replace um, burgers primarily rather than eggs? Yeah, I know, sure. But, but you need to... Someone needs to say, right, this is a burger patty and this is a, a vegetarian patty and see what the contents are and see, can you sustain your life on that one or this one? And that's, that's the question. Yeah. And I, 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 I do think that will, because I mean, we're still early days on that. I, I genuinely do think they will do that just because it, it would be just easy for them to do it. And at some point, vegans and vegetarians who are often very health conscious will be saying what why why aren't we also getting these elements um and and so how how can you one of the issues i think is that if you're a parent your kids are in a, a society out of your control and so if if children are going to school and having school meals is there a way for them to live this diet without it being disrupted too much to make it obsolete Sorry, which diet? I'm sorry, we cut out there. We, are you talking about the Atkins diet? Yeah, just because. Okay. Yeah, because if you're if you're doing the the Bantig diet and then going yeah. to school where you've you've got school lunches which are chips and uh, burgers, like is there a way to actually, as a parent, to to live this diet with your children properly? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've got many people do it, and what they do is that they feed the children at home. They don't feed them at school. That that's the key. I know I appreciate that many people have to go to school and that, that's where they get their food. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with a burger. That's a, that's a great piece of food. It's what comes with it. That's the problem. You know, it's the chips and the Coca-Cola that comes with it that are the problem. Yeah. So, so our goal, in, and we wrote a book, by the way, I wrote a book about children's nutrition uh, in which we put the, the type of diet, the Banting diet, together with all the diets that that you would want and the, but the key is again it's it's eat infrequently you don't want to be snacking on sugar high sugar foods that, and highly processed foods 
How, what, and was the, what was the, what was the, just out of curiosity? What was the reception to a book a book about that? Because I know that it, as a as a if you're a parent and you're a vegan, and the first question is like, are your children vegan? Are you going to force that upon them? Blah blah blah. All the all the stuff that goes with that. And I just think whenever you talk about children and nutrition, people take on something completely different. What what was the <laughs> reaction? I'm just curious as to what the reaction was that in terms of you know how the the you know the was there was there a um, uh, a pushback on that as well uh no you know so firstly the banting diet one of the biggest selling books in south african history so that's and we we have a there's a banting seven day meal plan facebook page in cape town which has 2.4 million followers that's more than any political party in south africa now that <laughs> they, they're not all they're not all in south africa there are some other people other as well so by and large, the banting diet has been very well received and the, and the children as well. You know, of course, the whole story was I was charged by my health professors council for promoting the banting diet to a child or to children. And they said that's going to kill them. <laughs> it's going to kill 100 million, 100, <laughs> kill a million children in South Africa. So, but the reality is we could show that that would, that the evidence is the opposite. So no, um, so that, that's interesting. The, I, I wouldn't say that it's been as successful as amongst the adults, but it certainly wasn't, there wasn't a great pushback. Yeah. So then there's, there's, there's two, there's two things that, that people often talk about. Um, so one of them is the, you know, the need for carbohydrates. If you're, if you're really trying to get high performance uh, at shorter distances and the move really is that people try and train like elite athletes now, even, even, I mean, we're, we're not elite athletes. No. And I've, I've certainly, what? <laughs> if you haven't been able to tell already, but I've certainly trained as hard as an elite athlete, yeah. if not harder for periods of time. Yeah. Um, so are we, is there a way to, to, to have, well, what, what would you do if we're trying to get that performance gain of carbs? over like 5Ks, uh, you know, one mile races and, and shorter distances. So, so we've done a really good study in America on 5K time trials. And we, it was a laboratory-based study where we fed the a group of 12, I think it was, sorry, eight athletes, because it's difficult to get people to, to do a study over six to 12 weeks. And we fed, we fed them in random order, high carbohydrate, high fat diet. And at the end of the study, there was zero difference between performance. Now, these weren't good athletes. They were, they were reasonable. They were, ran 5Ks in under 20 minutes. So they were, they were better than 88% of all American athletes. So, so that's the evidence we have. We're now doing a 1K time trial, a mile time trial. So we're doing a study on the, over the mile. But the reality is that, that when you look at the data, the data shows that the vast majority of athletes, there is zero difference between a high carb and a high fat diet. The only difference is the high fat diet will keep them thinner and they will have less visceral fat, which is the problem. Because you go to the marathon, and I haven't been to the London Marathon lately, but if you go to a marathon in South Africa, including the Comrades Marathon, and you watch the people finishing in the last two hours, they're frankly obese. They, they, Many of them are moderately obese. And you just think, you know, you're just eating the wrong diet. If you just cut the carbs and eat more protein and perhaps a bit more fat, you could lose 10 kilograms and you'd run faster without having to do anything, just change your diet. So the problem is in nutrition is that we don't recognize that there are humans with insulin resistance. And I'm a classic case. I, I was 
born of, of a family that is profoundly insulin resistant. And I showed that I was insulin resistant when I was running marathons and training hard. I was profoundly insulin resistant. And then I became progressively obese and developed type 2 diabetes. And I reversed it by eating a low carbohydrate diet. And so for me, carbohydrates will kill me. I shouldn't be speaking to you that I should be dead because I've had the diagnosis of diabetes for 12 years. 12 years. And my dad died 10 years after the diagnosis. And so that's the message we're trying to get out, that carbohydrates are great for a small proportion of the population, a tiny proportion of the population. But if you're insulin resistant, you've got to be cautious. You've got to be careful. Because it's no good arriving at 60 and lose your leg or have a heart attack and think, oh, my gosh, if I'd only listened earlier and discovered whether I was insulin resistant. So I think that's, that's, that's a key message that, that I have. And, and how do you get that test? Is that yeah, an easy one to do? Or? Yeah, it is. You can measure your fasting insulin. That's insulin when you wake up in the morning and your glucose in the morning. And there's another variable we talk about, the glycated hemoglobin. So if your glucose is elevated, it binds to the red blood cells, and then that causes damage, and we measure that. So the, the higher the glucose, the more damage you get to your red blood cells. And that's the glycated hemoglobin, HbA1c value. And if it's above 5.5, your doctor will say you're perfectly normal. If it's 5.6, you are pre-diabetic. You will get diabetes, I can promise you. So that's... And that's where medicine is so wrong. It, it doesn't recognize that we're on a continuum. And when you're young, it doesn't look like you're insulin resistant. It doesn't look like you're pre-diabetic, but on proper testing, you'll find that you are. So those are sort of tests that, that, that you need to look at. So the markers observe, are there pretty much from, from birth. They, they, insulin, your, your fasting insulin starts to rise very early on. They're even better tested to measure your insulin when you're in response to a glucose load, a load of carbohydrates, and then we check your insulin. And uh, if your insulin is elevated, that means you are essentially diabetic. It doesn't matter what else, what other the results are. Of course, this is way ahead of current medicine. So, so you're not going to get this advice, but I, it would have helped me to know that I was diabetic, you know, 20 years ago or pre-diabetic or profoundly pre-diabetic. It would have helped me. And, and there's a lot of people like that. Yeah. Um, now, I've, I've got a question I wanted to get in yeah. while we're talking about it rather than at the end. Um, but it's a question that I don't actually understand enough about because uh, I'm not clever enough. But Rena McGregor, who's one of uh, the leading sports nutritionists in the UK. So yeah. she was asking, um, and I don't I don't fully understand her implication with this, but she says, what are your thoughts on links between low-carb diets and hormonal re regulation, particularly in women? Yeah, that's interesting because we normally find it kind of improves. that. Uh, so there's a condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is quite common in young girls and is caused by having too much, too much testosterone and perhaps too little estrogen. And they, when they go on the diet, it is a treatment because it's another marker of insulin resistance. So they, go, they get better on it. The, I'm trying to think what other benefits there might be. Infertility is a huge problem, which is reversed by this diet. So in general, we, the feedback we get from, from women who have struggled with their fertility is that they suddenly become pregnant. And so I'm, I'm accused often of causing <laughs> growth of children or outbursting of children in Cape Town. And, and why would that be? Because your, 
you, you need fat in the diet. And if you're eating a high carbohydrate diet, you're not getting enough fat. And something changes so that, you know, starvation in females turns off their fertility. But I don't think it's just starvation. I think it's a lack of fat in the diet. So it's, they need fat. They need fat stores to become pregnant and to survive, to, to feed the child as it's growing, because that's a huge burden on them to provide all the nutrients. So I suspect that is the case. But you know, just from, from the experience we have, people writing to us and telling us, and that if you go to the Banting seven-day meal plan Facebook page, there are literally thousands of people who said, thank you, Dr. Noakes. I, I could get pregnant again. Yeah. So, um, so basically, is, is there an amount of carbs that you have to stay with under then if you're doing this start or else everything unravels? Yeah. So again, it depends on your level of insulin resistance. So I, I've got a slide, a, a celluloid slide from the 1980s of the average carbohydrate intake of a Tour de France cyclist. It was something like a kilogram a day, a thousand grams. Wow. I mean, it, yeah, it was four thousand calories of just carbs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it was unbelievable. And it wasn't a balanced diet. That's for sure. Boy, it was nutrient poor in many things. So, so that might be the extreme. And I'm sure that the Tour de France cyclists, maybe they've got, maybe they're 500 grams now. And not all of them, but, but some. So, if you're doing an enormous amount of exercise, five or six hours a day, you mm. can get by on with 500 grams. But but some can't. Um, that some of them it'll still make them fat, so they have to be wary. But anyway, if you're like me and you're profoundly diabetic, there's only one solution. It's got to be 25 grams or less. So that's the extremes. You've got 500 grams Tour de France down to 25 grams if you're type two diabetic. I think that there's no reason to take more than 150 grams of carbs a day that if you're the average athlete training half an hour a day there's no need for more than that and uh, you but of course if you're insulin sensitive you'll get away with it you can get away with 200 300 but it's once you realize that you can be thinner and it doesn't affect your performance in any way and it reducing your carbohydrates might well prevent you getting type 2 diabetes in the long term and then you might drop down I've seen athletes who come down from 500 to 100 grams and they've got to stay in bed. They said they came to me and said, Prof, you got it all wrong. I can't even get out of bed now on your 100 grams of carbs a day. So you've got to be cautious. You don't jump from 500 to 100. You slowly release as you slowly reduce as you go along. And, and what would you then advise these, say, a Tour de France athlete who is cycling six hours a day once they've reduced down their their carb intake, what would their race nutrition look like? Yeah, they're definitely, so, so the, the beauty of that is that Chris Froome is a classic example. So Chris Froome is actually from, although he's from Kenya, he grew up and trained in Johannesburg. Hmm. And he, he weighed eight kilograms more than he does now, training in South Africa, eating a high carb diet. He then, in the one Spanish race, he suddenly came home he came to Cape Town because his girlfriend was here and she noticed he looked like a skeleton. So she said, what happened? So she said, I went on a high protein diet and I lost eight kilos and I came second in the tour of Spain. And that was the beginning of his career. So he's, he's insulin resistant, but he can't win the Tour de France without carbohydrates, but he can't win the Tour de France with too much carbohydrate. 
So what he does is he will increase his carbohydrate intake on the days that he needs it or the day before when he needs it. But in the off season, if he eats like he does on the tour, he's going to put on weight because he's, he's very sensitive to weight gain. So he's, a, he's an interesting, he's a, a really interesting case because he shows you the two sides of it. That if he eats too much carbohydrate, he gets fat and he can't compete. If he eats too little, he can't compete in the sprints and the, the time trials. So he needs them for, so he takes quite a lot of carbohydrate actually on the bike on the long stages, he will definitely be eating, be eating carbohydrates. But in training, he will often eat very little carbohydrate. And um, like, is, how do we find that balance for ourselves? Because say we're, we're training, you know, 70, 80, 90 miles a week. In essence, that wow. is like you're racing every day. Uh, well, yeah. you're probably having two, two intense workouts a week. Um, so would you, would you then have carbs on those days or just save it for race day yeah that's that's a great question i would say that from because my problem many of the nutritionists are not medically trained and they don't understand insulin resistance so if you ask me that question the first thing i would do is i will find out whether you're insulin resistant or not and the degree of insulin resistance and i will titrate the carbohydrate intake according to your insulin resistance not on your performance requirements so if let's say you were profoundly insulin resistant and you were harming your body by eating 500 grams of carbohydrate a day, I would say, listen, we have to cut it down and we've got to adapt you to this. And then we'll find the minimum amount that on which you can perform adequately. That, that's the key. But let's say you were eating 500 grams of carbs a day and you absolutely had no problems. You were, you were insulin sensitive. And, and there are athletes like that. One of one of my great friends, he always laughs at me. He's now 72, he's my age. He says, Tim, I never ate once on your diet. And he happens to be one of the better runners at his age of 72. He won many big races and he's, he never lost anything. He, he, he's been amazing. But you know, he's a genetically completely the opposite to myself. So, so I think the message would be that in the long term, your health is very important. And so just look after that. And if you're insulin resistant, know that the more carbs you eat, the quicker you're going to get into trouble. If you're insulin sensitive, do what you like, you know, then you, you can titrate it. But also don't think you need a hell of a lot of carbohydrates, excuse me using that word. But because I'll tell you why, we did, we've done studies on high carb and high fat diets in athletes. And we've monitored what they burn during the day when they're not exercising. So when they exercise, they both burn quite a lot of carbohydrates. So even if you're eating a low, high-fat diet, you still store quite a, quite a lot of carbohydrate and you burn quite a lot of carbohydrate during exercise. The difference is when you stop exercising, the people on a high-fat diet switch onto a high-fat. They burn fat for all the rest of the day. People in a high-carbohydrate diet, eat carbo they burn carbohydrates for the rest of the day. Why do you need to burn so much carbohydrate when you're at rest? You don't. So that tells us that is excess, which you don't need. You, that excess you're burning so, during the day, you don't need. So what would, because we're, we're always told that there's you know, a 20 minute window where your, your body's almost super hungry post uh, exercise and you need to, to fuel it there to aid recovery. Uh, is that the case on, on, on this diet? And if, and if so, what would, what would your fuel be, your refueling be after a bout of exercise? Okay, so, so, so I don't agree with that data, those research. That sure it's true, but those are driven by industry. 
that was industry selling a product. And the, the scientists who do that research are funded by industry to do it. I know because I was one of them. And you've got to find a result. And if you give people a lot of carbohydrate, immediately they stop exercising. Of course, their muscle glycogen will go up more quickly. They'll store the carbohydrate more quickly. But no one says that they're going to perform better. You see, in, in science, we, we have a model of how the world works. And the model that, that I wrote about in my book, Law of Running, was that carbohydrates determine everything, that your muscle glycogen determines everything. Nothing else matters. And that's nonsense. But if you do believe that, then you'll see, oh, well, you see, the quicker I get my glycogen back to normal, the better I'll be able to perform. But that's nonsense because there are other factors that in recovery. So it is absolutely true that if you take a high carbohydrate load early on, you will store glycogen more quickly. But what has that got to do with performance? Because people didn't study performance thereafter. Yeah. But, but then if, if you are saying that during performance that you know everyone burns carbohydrates at a higher rate, then surely that suggests that there would be a correlation for replenishing them early to be able to go again earlier. No, they don't. So if you're fat adapted, you burn fat mostly, almost exclusively. You know, we've, we've had athletes running at 90% of their maximum burning or a majority of fat. So, so it depends how adapted you are. And my book, Law of Running, is, describes carbohydrate adapted athletes. So what you said is absolutely 100% correct if you're carbohydrate adapted. But what, what we've realized is that those athletes who go and completely switch to have a high fat diet, high protein diet, low carbohydrate diet, they burn predominantly fat. And what's really interesting is I've got correspondents sitting behind me here from researchers in New Zealand who for the last two years, in fact longer for five years, have been trying to measure how much fat do you burn at, at maximum when you're exercising maximally when you're sprinting and the answer is conventional ways you can't measure it for various reasons there's hmm. there are problems you can't measure it and they're trying to answer the question using very very sophisticated techniques and the original study which hasn't yet been published because they had to go back and recheck it showed that even when you are sprinting you're burning plenty of fat now that completely conflicts with everything i wrote in law of running and everything that is written in all the textbooks. So it, it may well be that humans can burn fat when they're exercising very fast. And, and we, we've just missed it because we didn't use the techniques. So if, that is, if that is true, then, then carbohydrates become slightly less important perhaps. And, and do people then, if they are on, your, on, um, on the Atkins diet, need to refuel quickly after exercise or is, is no, that? No, not at all. And they don't refuel during. So, so you know, the people who run the 100-mile races, who they, they, that's the sort of event where high, a high-fat diet clearly to me is there's no argument it's going to be beneficial because you don't have to load up on carbs all the time. You just burn the fat because you're going much slower. And you're going at a speed which you can absolutely provide 100% of the energy from fat. So it makes sense. And even in the Ironman, I, I must finish up with a little comment there. Because two great athletes, I, they adapted this diet. One of them is Bruce Fordyce, who won the Comrades nine times. And I mm. forced him to eat a high-carbohydrate diet in the 1980s. And we produced a product called FRN, Fordyce, Rose, and Noakes. And it was these squeezies. We were the first producer of squeezies. 
So in his career, he won the Comrades nine times, but near the end, he was getting a little heavier. He weighed a kilogram or two more, and he was slower. And eventually, he started becoming pre-diabetic, and his running went poor, but that was like 10 years ago. And he changed, he switched the diet five years ago. And he said, Tim, you know, if you put me on a high-fat diet, I would have won the Comrade 20 minutes faster. <laughs> so, and he said, I wouldn't have just won nine, I would have won two more. So he's the one guy. The other one is a guy called Dave Scott, who is, who is mm. Mr. Ironman Triathlon. And he competed as a vegetarian, vegan athlete and won six Ironmen. And eventually he read my book and he's recently more, more recently also about four or five years converted. And he said, I asked him out straight. I said, so Dave, if you'd been eating the start when you were the champion, what would you, what would have happened? He said, I would have gone 40 minutes faster. In the <laughs> so, and he refuses to allow his athletes to eat a high carbohydrate diet. He says, if you're training that hard and eating mm. that much carbohydrate, you can't sustain it for too long. You can sustain it five or 10 years and then your performance goes off. Yeah. So, so those are two athletes who, of course, they're anecdotes. Absolutely. As is Chris Froome's an anecdote. But the beauty of anecdotes is they tell you what is possible. It doesn't mm. tell you that that's for everyone, but it tells you that these things, that there may be some truth in, in these things. Yeah. Who's the diet not for? Who, who, does, who, who would, would it be a bad idea for them to, to get oh, to there, it and they'd have to find Yeah, no, there is one condition where people can't burn carbohydrates at all. Sorry, there's, they can't. Sorry, there's one group, one group who can't burn fat and they have to burn carbohydrates. And if they go on the diet, they can die, literally. And I've seen that, a patient. It's called a carnitine palmitol transferase deficiency. They can't bring fat into their cells to burn. And so when they exercise, they can only burn glycogen, carbohydrates. And once they run out of carbohydrates, the muscle cells start to break down and they become paralyzed. I mean, it's, it's absolutely frightening their muscles start to break down. So yes, there are, but I mean, that's like 10 people have been described in, in history. Yeah. So that, that's, that's one group. Um, you know, there have to be some people for whom it's not good. There have to be, but, mm. but we, don't really, we don't really come across them as much as I would have thought. Like, for example, people would say, oh, if you've got gallbladder, you've lost your gallbladder, I can't absorb the fat, but they seem to cope pretty well for reasons that, that I don't know. You don't seem to need a gallbladder to metabolize fat. So and, but there may well be people, and but I think you could, they have to find out for themselves. That's why I say we're all experiment of one. And it doesn't matter if, if I tell you that 99% of the athletes I test on this experiment, let's say I took 1,000 athletes, and all, all, except, all of them benefited from a high-carb diet or a high-fat diet, that doesn't tell you anything for you as an individual. Because you could be different. And, and I think that's the point that I like to make. It doesn't matter how many studies there are saying that a high-fat diet or a high-carbohydrate diet is ideal for performance. You have to find out what works for you because the science is, may well be different for you. There are individuals who can't metabolize fat as well, and they need more carbohydrate. And they'll only find out by trying. And, and is there a way of, because I like to, uh, to celebrate my, my uh, exercise as such at times. Uh, is there a way in which I can do that? I mean, I, I'm aware it's not necessarily healthy to, uh, to booze heavily, but 
it does does alcohol given it's primarily carbohydrate is, is there any way of drinking and still following this diet yeah eat drink whiskey <laughs> whiskey is the least got the least carbohydrate so that one of the very first low carb books long before atkins was the the drinking man's diet and there's, <laughs> there's, there's a fabulous story because now you're not going to believe this that that my sister went on the drinking man's diet <laughs> in, in 1965, okay? 1965, and she looked fantastic. So what what do you have to have? And no, I couldn't work out what had happened, but I didn't ask her for whatever reason. I never asked her. So, and she sustained this. She looks magnificent today as she did then. She's now 76. And an alcoholic. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and so... So anyway, so now while I'm putting on weight and telling people to eat high-carb diets, she kept absolutely quiet. She never said a word. <laughs> and then eventually, when I went on the low-carb diet, she said to me, you know, Tim, I've been eating this diet since 1965. So I said, why didn't you tell me? She said, no, but you're the expert. <laughs> so I could have saved myself a lot of bother if I'd listened to her. <laughs> But um, but with things like say with drinking beer, um, would that I guess that all just counts against you, right? Yeah, a beer is a disaster. It's just pure sugar, and I mean it's 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 bottled sugar, and so that's the problem. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's wheat. It's wheat in a bottle, but it's the effect is like eating sugar, drinking sugar. No, yeah. no. <laughs> so, so so you're you're welcome to do it, but you got to be carbohydrate sensitive, and then you can then you can drink your alcohol. So listen, I, I mean, you're, you're extremely lean. So it's, it's not likely that you're insulin resistant, but you can be. You can be insulin resistant and very lean. But if you're lean and, and you haven't got visceral fat, because it's the fat in the abdomen that's the real problem. Yeah, mm. and, and that's the, and the, how, the fat. The fat under how the can skin we check is, that? Uh, you can measure whether your liver is full of fat. And that's another thing to measure. And there are certain enzymes which are contained inside the cells which are released. And again, these are big names. Gamma, glutamyl, transferase, GGT activity is a very good predictor of whether you've got enough, too much fat in your liver. And, and if you have, that's, that drives the insulin resistance and it's very good to get rid of it. And, and the, the way to get rid of it is a high-protein, low-carb diet. That, unfortunately, that, that's the reality. So, you know, what's really interesting, because I'm currently writing an article. I was debating one of the people who pushed high-carb diets. And, uh, and eventually they said, no, we can't have you debate her because you're too personal. <laughs> because I know her history and I know what she said in the past. And I know how she's changed her position. And I think I know why she changed her position. So, so anyway, they, I was thrown off that debate, but I, I obviously went into the literature. And the one thing that it does show is that the one difference between high fat and high carb diet, there may not be a performance difference, but the visceral fat goes down in athletes eating a high fat, low carbohydrate diet. And so they lose a kilogram or two, which you can't see because it's hiding inside the gut. Mm. And, um, and what, how do you, cause I've listened to other podcasts where you, you know, you you talk a lot about the fact that there are a lot of vested interests in the carb diet, um, and how how what can we do to reverse that? Given that school meals and everything in supermarkets and 
basically society is, is set up for this system. And, and that's not going to go away until, in reality, until America sorts out their um, lobbying funding yeah. and the uh, and the power of that, which which I don't think will ever happen because it's embedded in their freedom of speech. Um, so, like, can you see like how do we unpick this? Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. And you know, our, our foundation, the Noakes Foundation, we have a nutrition network, and we're currently working on producing the first uh, textbook for low carbs for medical a medical textbook. And one of the art chapters I'm writing is on the, the dietary guidelines, how they were developed. And they were, just, they were just sucked out of the thumb, someone's thumb. I mean, there were people who had no clue what they were doing. Then industry got involved and made sure they wouldn't change. So you're absolutely right. And they're not going to change. They, they're not going to change at all. Because, of, as you said, industry is, is much too powerful to prevent it. So it's not going to change. And that's why... You know, we just said we're going to change people's diets one person at a time, and that, that's all you can do. It has to come through the people. That, that's all you can do. And, and what, what you will find, uh, David, is that all the people who promote the low-carb diet were like me. They were fat, and they had a problem. They were following the guidelines. They did everything, as they were told by those guidelines, and they became fat and sick and lazy, and our running went poorly, etc., and then we decided to change and we saw the magic change. And, th and that's why we, we believe it. But if you're lean and healthy and athletic and you eat lots of carbs and you're not fat, you will never believe we're right. What you believe, you see, is the reason why you're thin is because you're disciplined. And Noakes got fat and Gary Taubes got fat because they're not disciplined. And that's not true. <laughs> we have a different biology that made us fat. And that biology is linked to carbohydrates. So that, that's the problem, that the doctors who promote the high-carbohydrate diet are all lean and healthy and athletic, and they've never had our experience, and they never will. Mm. And they'll always explain, the reason I'm thin is because I run marathons and I'm, I, I'm disciplined. I only eat so many calories, and it's not true. They are that well, way, be that that way mean, because their biology that, that is such... It is true. I mean, but that I mean, it's still true that that's why they are thin. Um, it, it's just not true that you're fat because you're not yeah. following there. Yeah, yeah. It's the yeah. reverse, really. Yeah. The same. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Um, and well, I because we there's so many other topics that I want to discuss, but I'm aware that actually this has been quite a chunky one already. Would you be happy to come back on a future episode? Of to... course. I'd love to. No, I loved you. I Amazing. really enjoyed it. I loved it. I loved it. And that's really good. You challenged me, which is what, what I like. You know, and I'd, you, I'd also... You, you did it in a nice, gentle, friendly, <laughs> passionate way, which is fantastic. <laughs> and I think we <laughs> were able both to express our opinions. And, and the audience can, can say, gosh, you know, that's how, that's how debate should be had. Not well, think, people yeah. attacking your academic credentials and, and being rude about one. That's not what we need. We need... Well, that's well, that's why I want the other episode to go into the attacks oh. then to uh, <laughs> really get. <laughs> yeah, we we paint good cop back up with our episodes. Like, this... <laughs> we do. That's right. You're like we we but we, we we soften you up with the first one, and then the second one we go kind of all gu all guns blazing when you that's when you right. kind of don't expect it. But I'd also like really the opportunity for our listeners to to digest this because I. I know that we do get questions from people who are aware of your work or aware of the um, the person on the podcast 
in advance but I'd, I'd love to get that give them the opportunity to ask that actually I've had um I've had Rini's come back to me um so she she said uh, what's the impact on digestive health and gut microbiome that needs whole grains needs whole grains um yeah you know the whole grain theory has never really been substantiated and i say that with i've looked into it because part of it came from my university so there were people here who were promoting the the high grain story the story is that it comes from Kampala, uganda and and there was an ex a scientist there who noticed that the the ugandans who ate a lot of cereals and vegetables had big stools and so he said oh you see the reason they have big stools is that's why they don't have cancer the they don't have just cancer. to check it's, it's they didn't have big big chairs they had big <laughs> i'm sorry it I wasn't like that. a correlation it, 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 it was wasn't a big as and there was a weird correlation it's because they had they had big poops yeah big poops <laughs> that's right okay and, okay and so this theory then became a theory and i've, I've actually got the book right behind me because i've you know, I, when I look at something, I go into detail, I get the guy's book and I read it. And so the whole theory then, so the, then there were two conflicting theories. The one theory was that it was a diet that was deficient in fiber that caused the problem. And the other one was that a diet that had too full of sugar because you'd, you'd refined the diet and it, it became that diet with, with too much sugar. And it wasn't the lack of fiber, it was the excess of sugar. And those were the two competing theories. And I can probably tell you that today, the one that's winning is the glucose one. That the fiber story has never really been proven in randomized controlled trials. Eating more than a certain amount of fiber doesn't seem to make too much difference. So I'm not suggesting you don't need fiber, but you don't need fiber by itself isn't going to help it's much more likely it's the, the excess of the sugar and the refined carbohydrates that are the problem that are killing us rather than the lack of fiber. That, that, and, and, you know, I'm not biased. That's what I read uh, carefully. That, that's what the evidence shows. Well, we've got a couple of questions that we can quickly ask sure. those in. Um, there have been quite a few questions on your views on COVID. And I, I think we'd, I'd rather save that for, uh, yeah, for sure. another time. Because actually, that I'd I'd love to go into your story about uh, you know how you've been perceived by the academic community and how that's changed. And I think the whole COVID uh, situation would would flow into that as well. So, um, oh, this was one from Mike. Uh, he's, how many people do you think you've saved with research from hyponatremia? That, that's a great question. Thank you, Mike, for asking that question. You know, the, I go back to a study that was done at Boston where they promote, and Boston's only half the distance. And they literally had thousands of, if you computed for the whole race, there were thousands of athletes who developed, would have developed hyponatremia. I forget which year it was, 2003, 2004, somewhere there. And if you had doubled, doubled the distance and you would, we would have had, in the comrades of, say, 20,000 people, we might mm. have seen 10,000 people with hyponatremia. And amongst them, there might have been 100 who were critically ill. So, so we could have had hundreds of deaths. It's absolutely correct. Yeah. 
and um and actually it was kev who asked that so apologies <laughs> got the name wrong um yeah who do you think is the uh the greatest of all time comrades female runner male runner and what would your advice be for those doing it for the first time uh, uh, bruce is clearly the best because he's won it nine times and Frith van der Merwe was the best female. She we had an incredible time. It, you know, Bruce and I tried to convince her that she should calm down and not try and race everything. But her personality was she raced in training and she raced in races. And she couldn't resist racing. And so she eventually went, she collapsed very, very quickly. That, she was one of those tragic, amazing performance. And then it all dropped off. Hmm. Bruce, by the way, has just written a book. So that's the, he's written a book because of lockdown. He went through all his old training diaries and he wrote a book about his first year training for his comrades where he starts complete novice and finishes the comrades in under seven, and a half, seven hours, comfortably under seven hours. And it's a fabulous, fabulous book. So, so I would advise that, and I think it's called something runner, wind runner or something like that. But anyway, that, if people want to know how he started, it's it's a fabulous book because it, it's every day he writes there. Today I did this and I felt terrible and I ate this and <laughs> yeah I didn't go to university because I felt sick or whatever. It's got everything. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Oh, that be and actually I've, I've I've met Bruce before, so I messaged him. I didn't realize he'd book out. We're getting to come on and talk about it, but I do like the yeah. fact that sub seven is the marker of a good comrades time 658 yes. come on come on scrapes in and and what would you what would your advice be for a, a first time a, a person training first time for comrades yeah i think the 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 way i did it was you just run mileage that that's the key you know but i trained with dave levick i didn't train with him sorry obviously i couldn't train with him he won the race that year and and he said it's okay doing all this long slow stuff but you do have to do some intensive training but the emphasis was doing on the long runs and so my best piece of advice and as in law of running somewhere that you've got to run the long run sorry you've got to you've got to do the saturday runs and i used to start the, the start of the season in january and just try and do 25 to 30 k's if i could do that it didn't matter how slowly or how fast by by march it suddenly became easier and by April, I could do 40 miles and that, it, didn't, it just felt just easy. Hmm. That's the key is to get those long runs in because that comrades is just, it's the, the loading, the bouncing, the loading. That's hmm. what really gets you. After 65 Ks, that's what determines your finishing performance. It doesn't matter how fast you ran the 10 Ks. It's can you absorb all that shock? And it, as you know, what happens near the end of the conference, actually, it's not you don't want to put your, you don't want to run forward, you don't want to land. Because you've got so much pain landing, <laughs> you, you just can't, you don't want to land. <laughs> so you run slowly. And that's the key. It's the, it's the absorbing the energy of landing. That to me is what happens near the end of the conference. And the only way to do that is you've got to put mileage, you've got to done big mileage. Yeah. I'd say actually, Rich, if you're, you know, listen to the Camille, I think the first one we did with her, or maybe the second. Um, yeah. And she was talking about doing, in, instead of just doing interval runs, actually doing interval runs up and down hills so that you are practicing slamming your legs into the ground on concrete um, yeah. or road. And then the last one uh, is from, from Ross. He was saying, um, you know, given your, your, your understanding of the, um, of the way we govern our, uh, our efforts, like what are the best approaches to overcoming the mental block that you can do 
Yeah, you know, I, I think that it's just you you got to train hard. There's the I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, the book you need to read is Once a Runner. Once a Runner by John Parker. It's a book described as the best book ever written on running. And it's a novel. And it really describes Frank Shorter and his group. They go to Florida before the 72 Olympics. And they mm. train. And it's about them, although they're not the people. It's written by a guy who's trained with them. And there's a moment in the book where this guy's a, a good miler. And he's now being coached. And he's told he's got to go and live by himself, etc. So they put him, they set him up to live by himself so he can just train. And then they said, okay, now we're going to train you. And there's one event, one, one day he comes to the, to the track. And he normally does 12 times 400 in whatever time. So he does the 12. And the guy says, okay, we could do another 12. What? Another 12. <laughs> and when he's done that, he does another 12. And when he's done that, he does another 12. And that's, and then it, then it makes him. It makes him as an athlete. And that's the reality. You have to push yourself into a, a space where you cannot believe you could possibly exist. And I think that's, that's probably the reason why the Kenyans are so good. Because I was just chatting to a South African lady who trained with the Kenyans at 3,000 meters. Hmm. 3,000. I mean, I can't walk at 3,000 meters. And they train so hard. They, they just push themselves to beyond the, any limits that people understand. So, so we all set the limit. This We think this is what we can do. And the only way you'll ever get through that is to test yourself. I learned that because I was a competitive rower and exactly the same thing happened to us. One day, like, we used to do six times 500 meters in training. And one day, the coach said, go back to the start. We did the six one. He said, go back to the start. And we did another four. And we didn't feel any worse at the 10th as we had at the end of the sixth. And then we realized the pain, the discomfort, you generated yourself. The body can do mm. much, much more than you believe it can. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, and that's something we can go into on, on the next episode. But um, well, thank you so much for coming on, Tim. It's been as interesting as I'd, as I'd thought it would be. If, if people want to, you've mentioned your foundation, but if people want to kind of which books of yours, which uh, how to follow you, how to be to be most involved, do they want to find more? Yeah, I think they should go to our website of the Noakes Foundation. Or if they want to know more about the science of the nutrition, we have a nutrition network. And that, that gives you all the hard science and, and practical stories. And then I'm, I'm on Twitter at Prof Tim Noakes. And, and I must tell you that for a long time, I was targeted by the vegans. But they've <laughs> left me alone now. <laughs> you don't want to get targeted by vegans. <laughs> no, like, right. when, when the vegans turn on you, you, got, you, 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 just, you just have to wait it out. Wait it no, out until right. someone else comes along. That's the key. That's right. That's right. Oh, the way you didn't realize is Jaden's giving, giving you a, a virus through your computer now. So you're ruined. You're ruined. It's going to block you yeah, on I'm Twitter. Caught, caught, They've got I'm you. <laughs> yeah, I was, the, uh, I was the Trojan horse. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. No, the vegans now treat me with respect, some with respect. So I'm quite amazed. <laughs> well, there's a, well weird, there's a weird overlap. There's a lot of, because there's a lot of yeah, vegans exactly. who are anti-vaccination as well, because oh, you know, it? it's all is about it? controlling your body. And, yeah. and so they're in that, there's a lot of them in that weird world of, we don't know who's side what. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is, it's and we're against ultra-processed foods. So that's, that's the key. Yeah. 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 Oh, I just, I just love them. I just love them so much. All protest foods are so tasty. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry, Tim. This is my struggle. They're delicious. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. But also, a good steak is pretty damn awesome as well. Oh, but, um, good. Well, <laughs> well, thanks so much, Tim. And uh, what well, hopefully we'll be able to set up a, a follow up to this because there's so much sure. more to talk about. And uh, and yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks, David. Thanks, Jody. Lovely time to head with you. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. Yeah, I mean, it's. I I thought we we've got to do a part two because I I mean I'm I'm fairly convinced by what he says, but I'm also fairly convinced by anyone I talk to who's enthusiastic and nice and has <laughs> no, a lovely doesn't. voice like him. So I thought we need it's we need really, an opportunity an opportunity for people true. to listen and come back with more with oh, yeah. more knowledge with more detail with more questions um yeah but yeah how do you because that's i mean for both of us what he's saying basically fundamentally means we're both doing it wrong yeah no absolutely I, the, the thing is i it's one of the things that i mean i've never had my diet has never been right but then i've been I, my diet has never been right, not because of any uh, dietary choice I've made. It's all been <laughs> purely laziness and <laughs> convenient. That, 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 yeah. let's do, I, I mean, if you draw a line under it, it's pure laziness and never having really thought too much about what I've been eating, um, unless for very, very brief periods where I need to lose weight for some event or, or something like that. Yeah. That, that, that's what defines it. It doesn't matter. I, I could be a meat eater. And it, I would still be in the situation. I still would not be, you know, the, the weight that I want to be or anything else like that. I don't think it's anything to do with it. I, I do think that there is a, um, there is a, there is a particular challenge, uh, especially, yeah. But I, don't, I, I honestly, I know that in terms of veganism, everyone tries to push the health benefits and stuff like that. And I completely, uh, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not convinced that that there are massive health benefits because mm. you know. I've had gout, so um, <laughs> <laughs> we should have asked him about the gout. We should have. He's talking oh! about the gout. Oh! about the gout. But uh, the other thing he talks about, which I think is really interesting, and and this is particularly interesting because you know we work in marketing, uh, and I work mm. in a particular brand of marketing that um, uh, a lot of kind of like direct response marketing, especially with uh, clients in the US, and it's kind of true that everybody is a conspiracy theorist in some way because. It's almost, mm. and, and it was really funny because I was looking up the um, the book, um, The Drinking Man's uh, uh, Guide to Nutrition, um, or The Drinking Man's Diet, I can't remember exactly what it was called, but I was, I was kind of looking up that one thing You're to thinking, see, you know, this what this is the, something I want to believe. This, this, this is, is my new diet. I can get behind. What's um, that, honey? What yeah, do you mean I'm on a diet? I'm not dying. dying. <laughs> <laughs> everything, um, Whenever it comes to a new diet or comes to following something, we almost yeah. have to be- we almost have to get in that conspiracy theory state of mind to believe that something is tricking us or something is for- has forced us previously down a route, and yeah. that is why we are the way we are. And it's and it's totally true. When I changed from being vegan, there was a you know a load. Of, I mean, I knew some of this stuff already. I knew all that stuff, but they you know things like what the health and stuff like that. That was all. That's all conspiracy theory. It's all conspiracy theory about you know uh, big uh, big food and everything that goes with that. And like you know, every time we want to change behavior or we want to follow something mm. that is slightly harder to follow than you know not doing anything. There's mm. always some element of a conspiracy. Theory. All of those Alan Carr, you know Alan Carr, like the How to Stop Smoking um, books. 
Not the, the comedian. Oh, Alan Carr, chatty man one. But oh, okay, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Alan Carr, have you yeah. ever read any of those things? I've I've read them. Um, it's purely from a from a sort of a psychology. I'd have to take up equation. smoking first to then. Take up smoking, and he'll help you. <laughs> it's a really those... good book if well, you love it. If you <laughs> but you just take up smoking. <laughs> but, but with those ones, it's all about you know how to stop sugar, how to stop debt, how to stop things, and all of those use the psychological power of a conspiracy theory in order to change your behaviour about doing something. And so, in many ways, we talk to people about conspiracy. It's theories. not conspiracy, like, though, is it? Like that's what I liked when well, he actually but, said, well, well, "There's not you, conspiracy. It's, do... it's just it's market economics, does... or it's very obvious." They're like they yeah, want to sell you yeah. stuff, so they've told no, 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 you but that. That's when not throwing, yeah. When we're throwing mm. around conspiracy theory, or when one is throwing mm. around the words conspiracy theory, like there mm. is a very fine line between this is what's happening, and mm. when does then that become a oh you're you're, you're putting motives on them that that they don't have, and I think that's when it kind of becomes conspiracy. Because it's whenever you call it put big in front of something. And that's when it becomes a conspiracy. <laughs> well, like the rather than the pharmaceutical industry, big pharma. Big pharma. Big like food. Like the food industry, big, big sugar. Big food. Big, big sugar. Finance. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's all of those things as well. I think it's, it's so true, isn't it? Like whenever you hear, as soon as Bill Gates is mentioned, as soon as you're we like, get oh, here we go. It's like, here we go. <laughs> but no, I thought, I, the thing is, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's absolutely the right time to end that interview because almost like we have people on all the time who mm. you think when you have a conversation you're like actually all of this makes complete sense but we don't have the knowledge to to kind of rebut some of those things you know and and, and challenge them on that and i think you know i think i think that that's a good thing to do i think i'd love to get probably. tim i'd love to get tim and tim on a podcast together <laughs> no just to see just to see where that went no i wouldn't at all one of them <laughs> one of them at least one of them's a scientist okay. who's got the highest the award goes, in science. What, in what science. are calories? Do we even know what calories are? I don't know. <laughs> being philosophical as to the, you know, the, the, you believe whether calories even exist is the is the right right route to go down. But I think the the what is what is a problem is the environment mental impact of animals, and that is that is where everything becomes awkward because i don't think like and and the, the good thing about grains is they make us really fat because they give us loads of calories <laughs> on quite a small bit of land but yeah and that i think that's my that is the next step almost is that we it, if someone does the calculations on what the reality of that would look like if we did so, unless we eat insects, like what is the environmental impact of us all increasing our our meat consumption? Because it sounds like it's it's not even chickens probably not as good as red meat. Well, it's, um, it's not. And it's so not, it's not. It's the thing is, it's not about. I, I thought the thing that he was talking about was that it's not necessarily increasing consumption to a certain level. It's removing carbs. So I mean, if it means like eating no, the well, same level if of you protein think it, you are now and reducing the carbs you're eating. I suppose then you need the protein to make up what you're losing in Yeah, in carbs and, and if you fat. think of the, the individual he mentioned who, who'd been on a, a, a low-carb diet for a long time but actually had had too much fat, um, we're then looking at more lean meats, we're looking at liver. I mean, the good, what we could eat is more awful, that, certainly, because that, that's the good stuff. But we're then, if we're looking at more lean meats rather than fatty meats and fatty foods, then actually that is we're using less of the animal so and that that's the that's going to be the hard 
point where say even if say in this dream world we do convert everyone then the planet is ecologically fucked and so are we choosing then and so Personal will this versus the planet yeah and then will it be only rich people can afford lean meats and the poor are still eating carbs and fat and that's the way we save the planet so you know that's that's gonna be the hard thing like that's the what? way we save the planet. We throw people under the bus. We throw I mean, that's exactly under the bus. Is that, is so, that... like? Well, uh, I, I start sounding like a conspiracy theory. I'm like, well, that. Hasn't <laughs> so... so I'm just I'm just thinking out loud, trying to think, what is the solution for Earth here? Um, and yeah, it's tough, isn't it? But do badders, let us know what you think. <laughs> when we really want to broaden that out. If you're watching this on YouTube, leave a comment. What is the solution for Earth? What's the like solution? Tell us. Yeah, yeah, because I generally thought we'd solve it. Just, oh, yeah, exactly. just today. I thought we were gonna get it. <laughs> get it done. <laughs> Damn it, it's broken over onto two episodes. But we really want this episode to um because uh, I, I, I'd love to follow up on this, but actually to talk to Tim about all the other things and and, and also to do with how you know the rigor of science mm-hmm. and the, the way he was treated and his view on that and how we can use that to assess um assess information but um you know what are your views on what he said what are the arguments that we we maybe don't know or haven't said or do you think he's completely right are there things we you need us to to raise because actually whatever we say he'll know a scientific paper that we don't and so um it could be that he's completely right it could be that we're just not informed enough so what are your views on this let us know uh letters at badboyrunning.com or spammers on uh, on instagram and I want to say, if you've been on the, if you've been on the banting diet or been following it for a while, we'd like to hear it. If you've tried following it and it caused issues, we'd like to hear that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and if you like this episode, then other good ones to listen to. Uh, Rini McGregor, really interesting, where she's talking about um, diet and ultra running. And uh, I'm going to follow up with Rini actually just to get to get her views on because I've 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 thrown in a few of her questions, but they certainly wouldn't have done justice to her knowledge on it um and other episodes are good if you were interested in more in the comrades things then camille her episodes first one's really really good which talks about her training which is very different to the training you'd expect actually from for something like comrades where she she never runs more than 20 miles a week uh, so 20 miles in a run um but it's all about consistent mileage and um intense hill sessions any others that you think would link i mean you could listen to the Tim Tim moves. That I mean, that is oh, an no, interesting don't, episode. Don't, don't like, no. If you want to see the opposite of science, <laughs> and you just want to hear a load of a load of opinion backed up by nothing, then that you could listen to that episode. <laughs> um, but if you want to join the discussion, head over to Facebook, uh, answer three questions, and you'll be allowed in the Facebook group and continue the discussion in there because I'm sure there'll be lots of opinion around this. Yeah, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll reach out to Tim to see if he wants to come on the podcast. I did note down that uh, John L. Parker Jr. He's still alive. Yay! So maybe we can get him on to talk about um, the book that uh, what was it called? Once a runner, uh, uh, once a runner. And um, if there are any other guests you'd like us to get on in the future, then do let us know. Just, just uh, message me directly on Instagram. Um, and we'll go and get them because we're thankfully because of your reviews, which you're hopefully leaving now have some kind of enough credibility to be able to get people like Tim on. So, um, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. And we will see you next time. See you later. Bye, 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 b
Yes, and give me one more try Cause a love like this Should I never ever die Come back Fuck you, buddy <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>